you, Erica, for sharing your experience and uh, for exhorting us and speaking truth to us. Um, so uh, in June, um, next month, we are entering a new series called June is for the Ladies. And <laughs> before you kind of like, what's going on with that? Each week, we are, I'm not going to be up here at the pulpit, but we're going to have four different women uh, preaching back to back to back to back um, in June. And so really excited about that. Um, but in the ECC, uh, our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, a handful of women pastors uh, set up a kind of a website and social media platform called Four More, meaning Four More Women in the Pulpit this year. And their encouragement to all of the senior pastors in our denomination was Four More. Right? Whatever you have in terms of pulpit people, um, add four more women each year. To the pulpit, and we, I mean, I renew, we knew uh, we've had women, uh, Erica has spoken, uh, Claire, when she was here, has spoken, Debbie Monzingo has spoken. We've had women at the pulpit, but it's not for women, it's for more women at the pulpit. So, um, and I'm gonna kind of uh, pre kind of give testimony, give witness to my own convictions around women in ministry, women in the pulpit, women in leadership. Um, because for me, it's a non-negotiable, and it's a part of what Erica was talking about, freedom. It's a part of uh, busting through the traditions of man, traditions of people, right, that pull our voices down and unleashing what the Spirit of God is all about and giving dreams and visions and passion to men and women. Um, and so I'm going to kind of set up June today by giving my some of my convictions. Um, but we, if you don't know already, Renew Church is part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. So we're actually Renew Covenant Church. I don't know, we don't always say Renew Covenant Church or Renew Church, we're part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Just because when there's new people and you say evangelical, then you have to explain a lot of things like, not that kind of evangelical, this kind of evangelical. Um, and then it gets confusing. And then when I say covenant, and young people are like, whoa, covenant, like, are you a cult? Like, do I have to sign my name on something? That sounds like the halo covenant, right? The alien oppressive force. And so rather than having to explain that up front, we just say we are renewed church or we're renewed. But we are part of the evangelical covenant church. And I like to say, I like to take a, like, a really prominent ECC church and say, like, Alright, so we are the evangelical, we are part of the evangelical covenant church like Quest Church in Seattle. You know Quest? Yeah, Eugene Cho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're the Cho of the North. Okay. So that's what we like to say. Uh, don't tell anyone that I say that. Um, but anyways, that's all to say. We're part of the evangelical covenant church. That's our denomination. And... Evangelical Covenant Church, just a history lesson, has ordained and fully credentialed women since 1976. So a couple years ago, we celebrated our 40-year anniversary of ordaining women in the church. Um, but it's still, to this day, a constant fight, right? Just because you're a part of the ECC, for instance, there are churches 
that don't believe in women in ministry but are still a part of the covenant church but do their thing anyways. There are churches that say we affirm women in ministry but when, when it comes down to the bottom line, when it comes down to hiring practices, it's still, they still would not hire a woman senior pastor. And so um, I'm here to talk about that's not biblical, right? That's not what God wants. And you, we can talk about it later if you disagree with that. But in, in terms of my convictions, I think it's a non-negotiable that women um, are to be ordained, can preach from the pulpit, are called and gifted to be senior pastors, to lead. That's just, if you're at Renew, you're going to know your pastor believes in that, and that's a non-negotiable for our church. Um, and I'm going to go through why, why I believe this. When I was thinking about finding a denomination, um, I was in seminary at Seattle Pacific Seminary. We, have, we were planting this church in our living room, so doing seminary, planting a church, and so naturally I was looking for a denomination to be a part of, right? Because I was like, I need money to plant a church. And denominations have money. And so, and I heard that the ECC one planted churches, that they were one of the most prolific denominations that planted churches, and they had a lot of coaching, they had a whole uh, church planning assessment for people who wanted to plant churches, and when they assessed someone and gave them the green light to plant, they gave uh, that church, that church plant, that project, three years of appropriation. So I was like, yeah, three years of appropriations. They really believe in church planning, and they put their money behind it. But the other two things that I was looking for is um, diversity. When I go to the conference meetings or retreats, when I look at the leadership on the national level of the denomination, what do I see? I want to see diversity. I want to see people um, of different ethnicities and cultures, women and men, top to bottom. And I saw that whenever I visited events or conferences um, that Evangelical Covenant Church put on. The other non-negotiable for me was women in ministry. I, I wanted to be a part of the denomination that affirmed women, women in ministry because of how my life had been so affected. My leadership had been shaped by women who had mentored me through my life. And, um, and so I really believe like, regardless of what people say, what pe some people say, I know in my life testimony for a fact that there are gifted women who are gifted in leadership, who shaped me and who spoke into my life. And that if they hadn't been there, I would have gone in a totally different direction. And so that's my conviction from my own personal testimony. God calls and gifts people as he wills. You can't limit who God calls and gifts, amen? Yep. And to say, well, women can't be ordained or be pastors or be leaders in the church is more about following the traditions and rules of men than the rule of scripture. And if you actually do read scripture, right, when the Holy Spirit, last week was what, Pentecost Sunday, about the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, Pentecost moment, when the Holy Spirit shows up in a community, in a place, a lot of things happen. People come to faith, people hear the gospel in their own language, and they're like, what, what, what? 
right? This is amazing. The other thing that happens in a lot of kind of charismatic movements or when the Holy Spirit's really moving and transforming a place is that people begin to prophesy. Gifts are like being uh, laid out by God and being expressed. Women, right, begin to take leadership positions. And that, that just tells me that if God wants to call and gift whoever, God spoke through the, a donkey, for God's sake, in the Old Testament. God's going to there's no, no one says, oh, donkey can't, donkeys can't preach in the, in the congregation, right? If God calls and gifts, he can call and gift who he wants to. And the, the ironic thing for me, the, the thing that frustrates me so much is that we spend so much time sometimes in the church arguing and trying to defend why women should be subordinate to men. We go to when you like look at scriptures and say, oh, women, see, 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 you shouldn't speak in the church. See, you're subordinate to men. See, in Genesis it says, men have dominion over you, right? You're Adam's helper. All of these things, we spend so much time, scholars spend so much time in that, and yet, in the church, we don't spend any time about the women who actually lead in Scripture. When's the last time you heard a sermon about Phoebe or Priscilla, right? Or the prophet Deborah? Deborah. When's the last time? We need to spend more time about that on that. That more time in Scripture, giving life to the stories we see in Scriptures, because God busts through. All of our traditions, all of our rules. And when we in the church say, oh, this group of people are subordinate right, to this group of people, we're not reflecting the gospel. We're actually reflecting the larger culture out there. There was a time, actually, when preachers and pastors used scripture to defend slavery. It's it. You, you can defend it. You can study it. It's in scripture. You can read scripture in that way. Now, no one would say that. No one would do that. I don't know. We'd go on social media and like boycott her. And then we'd lose her vote. Right? That's the power of social media. So we need to open our eyes, right? Where the Spirit of God is, things are set free, not bound. Right? Why do we spend so much time binding things and limiting things? When the Spirit of God is, things are unleashed and set free. Amen? Amen. And that's what uh, Peter was talking about after Pentecost. Everybody in the room was like, everybody there was seeing the followers dance and be so excited that they're hearing the gospel in their own mother tongue. And they're like jumping and dancing. It was 9 a.m. in the morning. And some of the people around said, those people are crazy. Are they drunk? Right? They're going crazy and nuts. They must be drunk. And Peter says, no. He preaches. He says, no. Let me tell you what just happened. They're not drunk. And he quotes Joel, right? The prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. All people. Your sons, what? And daughters. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, what? Both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Peter's like, 
Boundaries are being crossed. Walls are being broken down. Miracles are happening. And this is just like the prophet Joel predicted and prophesied. That when I pour out my spirit, men and women, men and women, men and women, right? Servants and free people. And that's the gospel. That's what Peter is talking about. When God's spirit pours out, will it just be sons who prophesy? No. Sons and daughters. When God's spirit pours out, will it just be men in charge who will be empowered to prophesy? No. Even the, on the servants, both men and women. And now we get to our scripture passage of the day. Uh, and it's Romans 16, 7. And this verse, this, uh, this portion of the Bible has begun to take great meaning for me. Because it's about the Apostle Junia. And my thesis today is this. Junia in the Bible was a female apostle. Junia in the Bible was a female apostle. And this is... This actually, this small verse, and I'll read it right here. Say hello to Andronica, Andronicus and Junia, my relatives and my fellow prisoners. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Right? This small verse is, has been like, depending on how you translate it and read it, it's like the it's like the key, the fulcrum. There has been hundreds and years of silencing, or you could say killing Junia in scripture. From this little sentence, hundreds of years of commentators and translators, thousands of years, trying to silence Junia in scripture. Because why? A woman was an apostle? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't take it. <laughs> A woman is an apostle. Oh my gosh, that just wrecks my world. It's like mind blown. I can't function anymore. I tear down every structure in the church. Oh, oh my gosh. But let's let's look at, uh, I don't know if you guys have your Bibles open or have different translations open, but on your piece of paper, I put down uh, some of, you know, not all, not an exhaustive list, but some of, some key translations out there. And the first four, you'll see um, the NASB, the Message, NLV, and CEV. Um, what do they have for the name Junia or anyone's? Junias. Junias. So let's take that first one, the NASB. Greet Andronicus and Junias, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles. Who, are, who were also in Christ before me. So Junias is actually someone's attempt to put an accent, uh, put an accent mark on Junia to make it Junias, which is a, would, would be a masculine form of Junia. The problem is, people have studied this, have looked at it and said, there's no one and in this time period, there's no one who has ever been named Junias. It's a masculine form of Junia, but no one, we have no record or documents of anyone named Junias. No man would be named Junias. We've never found anyone like that. But 
There have been documents that have found of handfuls, multiple examples of women named Junia. It was a common name at that time. So Junia is the common name that's used, and there's examples in historical documents of Junia. Uh, so Junia was an attempt to masculinize the name Junia, and it does not exist in the ancient world. No man in any document is named Junia. Let's go further. How did uh, the early ancient kind of commentators, philosophers, Bible scholars read this passage? So we have origin in AD 184. So if anyone was like close to the time of Jesus or close to the time of the apostles, right? It's origin, right? 8184 through 8253. And he writes, it is indeed possible that they were Paul's relatives, even according to the flesh, and that they believed in Christ before him and were held to be noble among the apostles of Christ. It can also be understood that perhaps they were of the 72 who themselves were also named apostles. And on that account, he would call them noble among the apostles even among those apostles who were before him. John Chrysostom, to be apostles is a great thing, but to be distinguished among them, consider what an extraordinary accolade that is. They were distinguished because of their works, distinguished because of their works and because of their upright deeds. Indeed, how great was the wisdom of this woman that she was thought worthy of being called an apostle. And then Theodoret of Cyrus. Then to be called of note, not only among the disciples, but also among the teachers, and not just among the teachers, but even among the apostles. Even from the early church fathers, in the early church, the early church interpreted these passages with Junia being a woman and Junia being an apostle. Amen? So when did Junia get a sex change? Right? When did Junia become Junias? Uh, the most prominent person was actually Martin Luther of the 95 Theses of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther used the masculine form Junia of Junias and, said, and then said Andronicus and Junias, these two men were great among the apostles. Even before that, I think Junia and Junias, that's a big thing. Is, is this person a woman or is this person a man? And it's, it's clear that the early church fathers saw that she was a woman. Um, the translation, it's, it's the, early, uh, the early Greek translations of the New Testament. Um, and every early translation into different languages of the New Testament had Junia. So we see this quote from Scott McKnight. First, all early translations of the New Testament into other languages listed Junia as a woman. F, a master of the history of our New Testament, in all its variation translations, says that Junia was a woman in the old Latin, the Vulgate, Sahidic, and Bahiric, Coptic, and Syrian. So the very first translations. Um, into different languages, uh, different from the Greek, Junia is a woman. So you want original source documentation, Junia. So somewhere along the way, it gets changed. 
So if you look at the translations, the first four use junias, and then the next, next four use junia. But if you look at the second kind of part of that verse, some translations say who are outstanding leaders. Uh, these two are respected missionaries. The message has outstanding leaders. I didn't know that. The message says outstanding leaders. Um, the CEV has, they are highly respected by the apostles. Right? So in the Greek, it's supposed to be they are prominent right, among the apostles. Meaning, they not only are they apostles, but they are like prominent as apostles. But another way that people have looked at that Greek is to say, and it works grammatically, but it's less likely to be the case. That it just means they are held in high regard, or they're held prominently by the apostles. Do you see the difference there? That would mean they're not apostles, they're just liked by the apostles. And so that's why certain translations can say, they were outstanding leaders, or the apostles really liked them and held them in high regard. They were missionaries, respected missionaries. <laughs> but not, they were prominent among the apostles. They were like awesome apostles. They were great apostles. And so there's a big kind of separation there. There's a big difference. And the reason why you see this, a lot of our modern contemporary translations actually come from a Greek translation, a Greek manuscript, right? And there are two kind of major Greek manuscripts. The Nestle Allen Greek manuscript, um, and then the UBS, which is... And this is this, these translations are the Greek manuscripts where most of our, the translations that we know, NIV, CEB, all of these translations are translating from this original Greek, right? Well, the, a change began in 1927 in the 13th version of the Nestle Greek New Testament, uh, where Everhard Nestle put Junias in the text, and the name Junia was buried in the footnotes. So there's no reason given, right? It's just, now it's Junias. But, you know, he gave a footnote. But Junia, this is Junia down here. But I don't know about you, when, you're, when I was in seminary, I never read those footnotes underneath. One, because they're so small. And two, it's like, there's enough to read. Why read the footnotes? So that, it, that's the first time she was kind of marginalized, right? And then we, we begin to see the juniors uh, as a male, the male uh, form takes, takes over. And then um, when Kurt Allen took over the Nestle Greek translation in 1979, he simply eliminated the footnote altogether. So there wasn't even a footnote. So from 1927 through 1920, every seminary student and pastor and translators into English versions of the Bible were using this Nestle Allen Greek New Testament to do their work. And there was no kind of explanation for why this shift from Junia to Junia. Are you with me, church? Yeah. Yes. Talk about revisionist history and voices being buried, yeah. right? That is the power of injustice. And that's kind of cultural, like our patriarchy or our, our tendency to want it to be about 
men in power. That just kind of, that lens makes us change history. And we see that in terms of race and culture. Like, we change history or the way that things are interpreted or the way things are written or how the story is told in order to justify what we're doing. But we're here to set the scripture free. We're here because the Holy Spirit sets people free. Amen? Amen. And we are a church that's about setting, seeing God and participating with God when people are set free and empowered. Amen? Amen. And that's what Jesus is about, right? Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? To set the captives free. That the blind would receive sight. Right? That's what Jesus was about. He was like, he went into the temple, he's like, it's stuffy in here. I feel cracked. You're trying to hold me down. Right? That's not why I'm here. I'm here for the good news. And what is the good news? People are set free. Amen. And because God is way bigger than our little, our little like mechanisms yes. and rules. Right? And the way that we form things and the webs that we weave to make sure that we're in control. God is bigger than that. Usually when God shows up, those things are exploding. Right? They're broken down. So Jesus opens the scroll and he's like, it's stuff in here. I'm here to set the captives free and to set free people and to break the chains of oppression. And that's what we're talking about. And that's what we need to be about as the body of Christ, as a church. Amen? Amen. We don't need to put chains, more chains on people, more rules and regulations, more things that say you're not good enough. You should live in shame. We need to be about setting people free and saying Jesus loves you. God loves you. God sees you. And he's called you. And he's gifted you. Right? You may have gone off track. But he's looking, he's calling you now. He's saying, come back. I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. And I'm going to empower you to do things that you never thought you could do. That's what God is about. And that's what we're about at Renew. Amen? Amen. A lot of the stuff material I'm getting is from Scott McKnight's little ebook called Junia is Not Alone. And I suggest that you look it up on Amazon Prime and get it. It's quick read. I read it in like 30 minutes. Uh, it's an ebook and a lot of great information. But some more resources you can go to the, look up Junia, the Junia Project on Google. But uh, I wanted to show a quick video. And this is uh, the 40th anniversary I talked about of the Evangelical Covenant Church of Ordaining Women. This is their 40th anniversary video. Um, and it's just kind of giving testimony to that. So how many of you know who Hulda is in the Bible? Raise your hand. So if you look up 2 Kings 22, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the, this be homework for you guys to look up Hulda. And this is Scott McKnight asked this in the beginning, like, do you guys know who Hulda is? Um, but Hulda was chosen by King Josiah um, at a time where uh, Israel had basically forgotten you know, the Torah and the teachings of Scripture, they're kind of in a mess, uh, to assess the Torah that was found in the temple. And 
Hulda, and he chose her above uh, other, many other prophets, contemporaries at the time. And she basically leads uh, Israel to one of its greatest revivals, just by proclaiming uh, the Torah and teaching the Torah. And just a, a, a few more names in scripture of women uh, who are a big part of scripture, just to, to write down and like, they, they give testimony to this. Uh, we know Rebecca, right? Jacob's mother, who makes sure that her son becomes the heir to God's promises. Ruth, her persistence, keeps her in the family of Israel and becomes the ancestor of David and of Jesus. Esther, who saves the whole nation of Israel by becoming queen. Uh, Miriam, one, she saves Moses' life, right? But later on, she becomes this uh, amazing prophetess slash worship director leader, right? She writes after the Israel, after the Exodus, uh, she interprets the Exodus of, uh, with song and leads the people in kind of interpreting that story through worship. And that's what worship is, right? The interpretation right, of the God story for the congregation, for the people. Deborah, the great prophetess of Israel. Mary uh, was the mother and influencer of James and Jesus. Just think, Mary grounded Jesus when he was dead, right? <laughs> Mary, like, <coughs> instructed him and taught him. Priscilla, who taught Apollos. Uh, Phoebe, who is a deacon in the New Testament. And those are just a few that you could look up. Um, but I wanted to give testimony to my own, own life and my own development as a minister, as a leader, as a pastor. Um, you know, I grew up in the immigrant Korean church, which is, at that time, um, what, I knew, what I knew about women growing up in a Korean home, a traditional Korean home, was that my mom cooked, right? My mom stayed at home. Um, women did all of the wash, washing and cooking and fellowship stuff when we ate after church, right? And all the men wore suits and did all the reading of scripture and the leading. My dad was a pastor, so he did all the preaching. I never saw a woman preach at the pulpit. And I think I just assumed in my head, pastor, that equals man, right? Pastor equals man. But when I hit college, um, I joined a parachurch organization, Bible study called InterVarsity. And I was discipled, I was mentored by Connie, who was a woman, very powerful, very direct, very like visionary woman. And she, she called me out on so many things, right? My relationships with women, uh, my, just my patterns of coping. It was like, this was like changing my life stuff. And, but not only that, but she was a big part of opening my eyes to how God and the Holy Spirit wanted to heal me, right, of my hurt and my brokenness. And she was the one who encouraged me in finding my voice and leadership. She was like, you're a creator, you're a poet, you don't have to lead like that. 
we can lead like this. She's the one who first encouraged me, you're different from people in the rest of the leaders in the fellowship. You're an evangelist. You don't, do you want to go into the Greek system your senior year and start a Bible study? Right? And I was definitely against fraternities <laughs> at that time. But I, my, I gave up my senior year to join a fraternity and started a Bible study. And she encouraged that. That kind of, you know, go out there, cross the boundaries type of thing. The next person, Sue, came after I graduated. Um, and they weren't inviting me onto staff with InterVarsity. Uh, but I, I said, no, I want to do it. I, I want to do it. They're, you're not ready. You need healing. You have character issues. You probably can't fundraise. All of those things <laughs> came on. And I was like, inside, I was like, you're racist. Um, but this lady named Sue at the University of Puget Sound, that I'll take them on. I'll vouch. She can volunteer with me. So I ended up being like a three-year volunteer there. And she taught me what it meant. Like, I remember, I'm like, oh, I have a lot of anger inside, right? I need to kill it. I need to kill that anger. And she's like, no, you need to embrace that David, right, and love him. I was like, whoa, mind blow, right? And what she did is she just opened her home to me invited me to their home group with like adults in it and like we shared a meal and we shared and I felt like an adult and she like you know believed in me uh, and when they left they moved to Arizona like me and my staff partner we took over you know that school that fellowship that she had invested so much of her life in and that's because of her pouring into me um, Another example was Kim, right? I was one of only, at that time, on staff with IB in the Northwest, I was the only male of color on staff, um, minority. And she advocated for me, she championed for me, she put me um, on the kind of the regional leadership team way early. But she saw things, right? She saw things and she gave me confidence and uh, you know, I ended up being the team leader at the University of Washington, Washington, which was the flagship school of the whole conference, right? And it just came out of nowhere, right? Um, but women pouring into me gave me over time the conviction. It became normative for me, right? It's normative for me to get my butt kicked by a woman. It's normative for me to have visionary women who have vision for my leadership development in my life. It's normative for me for women to speak in front of large groups and just blow the crowd away, right? That was, became normative for me when I grew up in a culture that it wasn't even seen. And so I am so grateful that God and the Holy Spirit intervened at that place because I think it puts me in a space to understand and advocate and create space for women, uh, not just women, for men, people of color, for everyone around that. It's about the Holy Spirit and God. It's not about the loud, the strong, the powerful, you know, but it's about who God's and who God called. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.